Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is what I wish would change in the world, is that success is built out of both grit and quit. It has to be. Because you have to quit all the stuff that isn't working and then be willing to stick this to the stuff that is, even though it's hard. So you, you actually can't have success one without the other. That was Annie Duke on Psychologist Off the Clock. We are three clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, author of Act Daily Journal, The Act Daily Card Deck, and the upcoming book, Act for Burnout. I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist, assistant professor at Brown University, and author of the book, Work, Parent, Thrive. And from coastal New England, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty, The Big Book of Act Metaphors, and the upcoming Imposter No More. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. We all know there are trade-offs in life, like having to drive a little further to save on gas or groceries. But when it comes to your health, you shouldn't have to trade off. So don't go back to that one doctor who's always late and rushes through your appointment just because they're close by or they take your slightly sketchy insurance. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. You can search by location, availability, insurance, literally no trade-offs here because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you know. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. My kid's pediatrician is retiring this summer, so you can bet I will be using ZocDoc to find someone new who we all love and trust. So go to ZocDoc.com POTC and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash P-O-T-C. ZocDoc.com slash P-O-T-C. Our sponsor today is Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. I love my Uplift standing desk. It's solid and sturdy and allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. The ability to switch from sitting to standing throughout the day has been a complete game changer for me. I feel so much better than when I sit all day, and it helps me stay alert when I get tired. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk. Everything you need to up your office game. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you are supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com slash POTC for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com slash POTC to get 5% off your entire order. Hi, everyone. We are here to introduce an episode that I'm 
incredibly excited about. I, I get excited about a lot of episodes, but I'm really excited about this one because it is about quitting. So I had the chance to interview author, world-class poker player, consultant Annie Duke about her terrific, amazing, transformative book that I recommend to everybody because I'm a little bit obsessed with it. And the book is called Quit, The Power of Knowing When to Walk Away. This episode is quite long because it was just such a great conversation and she had the time and so we kept going. And I just want to start by saying that I love any conversation that has to do with doing less. Lighty Klotz's book, Subtract, was another one of my favorite conversations. This idea of quitting, of stop doing, of doing less is so important in a busy world. And I I love that we have the chance to talk about it on the podcast. So I think it just gets me almost like too excited. But Debbie, what did you think of this episode that I'm going gaga over? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really fascinating. I think Annie Duke is obviously like super smart and has a really interesting way of looking at things. So I thought it was absolutely fascinating. I listened all the way to the end and was left wanting more. Um, And I think what's so cool about it is it was really fascinating from a like an idea and kind of theory perspective. But it was also really practical. I took notes, I went back and re listened to part of it. The part where she talks about an exit strategy, or she calls it a kill strategy, which you'll hear about in the episode. Um, But I took notes and used it that day in my clinical work. It's that helpful of a framework that I think it's, you'll find it both fascinating, but also useful, especially if you're facing a major decision, which can be really difficult. I think that the decision about when to quit, should I quit, what to quit, this is a tough thing to do. Yeah, it's super tough. And she does offer all of these terrific tools. And her book focuses a lot on decisions that are not necessarily relationally oriented. So it was really fun as a couples therapist and clinical psychologist to engage her on how do we make these kinds of decisions about whether to stick or whether to quit in committed relationships? Because I think you know, in the business world, those decisions are hard. But when our heart is on the line, when our personal lives are on the line, when our families are on the line, they're even more complicated. Well, I kept thinking about how this ties into acceptance and commitment therapy and the idea of psychological flexibility. And I think that sometimes, I think that the the bias, as she talks about, is to think of perseverance instead of quitting. And I think that sometimes actually what's much more effective and values consistent in the long run actually is not to persevere, to say, to make a conscious and intentional choice not to. But I think that in order to do that, first of all, sometimes we really have to be aware of our assumptions and our cognitive biases against doing so. And she talks a lot about that. So there can be a little bit of a awareness piece of this. And also willingness, you know, you have to face uncertainty. I don't know how I'm going to feel about this or what this is going to be like. You have to face loss. Like when you're giving something up, it can be really difficult. And I think sometimes we get really attached. You know, I was thinking of an example of a time I had this, you know, kind of part-time job that I was doing for a while as kind of like a side position. I became very attached to it because I really liked the work. I really liked the people, but I just didn't have time for it. And so I wasn't devoting enough time to it to feel really good about it. And I waited too long to quit. And in hindsight, I really should have quit months before I did because eventually it became really obvious that this was not working out. But I think at the time there, I had a kernel of like, I knew that I should leave this position, that this was not working well and it wasn't really a good use of my time. And I wasn't able to 
to do enough to make it worth paying me. Um, but I think that I was so attached to it. It was hard to give up. And that's the part that I kind of wish I would have known is like, it's okay to feel lost about that. It's a hard thing to do. And I actually think this episode, for a variety of reasons, is paired really well with the episode on regret that we released just a few weeks ago, because making decisions with uncertainty is a lot. A lot of the challenge is about this fear of, you know, what's going to happen and am I going to regret it? And am I giving up on something that I shouldn't give up on, And but I don't know? And that that fear can sometimes keep us doing something, even when the something isn't quite right. And as Debbie, you just said, that really contributes to some psychological inflexibility. It's like we keep doing the thing, even though it's not consistent with our values or the way that we want to show up in the world or the way that we want to be building our lives. And because of that bias towards worrying about regret or making a bad decision, we stay with the status quo. And she talks a lot about that in our conversation and in our book. And I share a personal example toward the end of our conversation where her advice helped me to let go of something that I was holding on to pretty tightly as well. So we hope you listen all the way to the end of the episode and get a lot out of this conversation with Annie Duke about quit. Annie Duke is an author, corporate speaker, and consultant in the decision-making space and a former professional poker player who's the only woman to have won the World Series of Poker Tournament of Champions and the NBC National Poker Heads-Up Championship. Annie's previous book, Thinking in Bets, is a national bestseller, and her latest book is Quit, The Power of Knowing When to Walk Away, and it is, in my humble opinion, nothing short of transformative. So we are here today to discuss quit and quitting. Welcome, Annie. Thank you for having me. All right. So maybe to start off, since we're recording the morning after the Super Bowl, and since I Uh, am in New England Patriots territory, and we are therefore obsessed with one particular football player and who has a history of quitting, a recent history of quitting, mm -hmm. I wanted to ask your thoughts on Tom Brady's repeated retirements. (laughs) It's interesting. The issue for any athlete is really, when is the point at which this isn't going to make me happy anymore? Um, where I'm not going to perform up to the level that I want to perform at that's going to be good for me, and how do I know that? And I think that what's really hard is that the point at which it's correct to walk away is before that thing is true. And th- I think this is the problem for all quitting. So what I mean by that is that if you were, if you had perfect knowledge, if you're Tom Brady and you were somehow omniscient, you would know that before he came back for this season, that he was going to have a crap season and he was going to be unhappy. And people were going to say, why did he come back? He's not performing well. And you would have ended up retiring again anyway. The issue though, is that for somebody like Tom Brady or for any of us really, at the moment that he was making that decision, yes, he had decided he was going to retire, but he hadn't been playing badly before that. So it's a problem of what's going to happen going forward. And this is, this is true, not just for a football player. It's true for someone say on a TV show, when is it going to jump the shark? It's actually true. Even if you're say climbing a mountain and what you have to figure out is at what point is it true that in the future, as I'm forecasting the future, the weather is going to be too bad for it to be safe, or it's going to be too dark for it to be safe. And the issue is that at the moment that that equation turns against you, the weather won't actually be bad. It won't actually be dark. 
So this is the problem that we all have with forecasting these kinds of things and and figuring out when we're going to quit. And what that often makes us do is continue past the point at which the future is already turned against us so that we can find out for sure that the future is already turned against us. And then what happens is that now people remember this crap season that Tom Brady had and that he retired twice, or people keep going up mountains when snowstorms come in, or we stay in a job too too long, or, I mean, think about how many TV shows, you know, I'm sure we all wish there hadn't been that last season. <laughs> and And I think that this is just fundamentally the problem that we have with decisions about quitting. And by the way, let me just also say decisions about sticking to it also, because all of these things, whether it's correct to stick to it in the future or whether it's correct to quit in the future are all fundamentally forecasting problems. And that means that we have to look forward to the future and be willing to walk away at a time when it's probabilistic, whether it's going to go against us or not. And that's just incredibly hard for us as humans. Yeah, I love that you dive into all the cognitive biases that go into why it's hard to quit at a appropriate time, you know, where we're sort of taking all that into account. And I wonder if you could just humor me for a moment so that I can tell you about the lens that I read Quit Through, which is as a yeah. clinical psychologist who uses a treatment that focuses on this unbuilding something that we call psychological flexibility, which is defined as persisting or desisting in behavior based on the situation and in the service of chosen values. So we talk a lot about psychological flexibility because it underlies mental health and well-being and it helps us show up in line with who we want to be and the life that we want to build. But it was so interesting to me because I was reading your book and thinking that we talk a lot about persisting and not enough about the desisting. And so I think you start off by talking about this huge issue, which is we have a real negative association with the idea of desisting or more directly put, quitting. So can you talk a little bit about the stigma of quitting? Well, I mean, yeah, if I were to call you a quitter, would I be complimenting you? (laughs) No, we just, you know, the idea of quitting is just associated with a lack of character. But so, so here, here's an interesting thing. So I'm a huge fan of Angela Duckworth. I'm a huge fan of the book Grit. I think that people should read it. It is very true that if you are going to succeed at something, you will have had to stick to it. So the idea that I need to be able to stick to something, even when it's hard, as long as it's worthwhile, is a really important idea, right? Like you have to have grit to to succeed at something that's true. I have a little quibble though, because the lab that she has to study grit is called the character lab. And I think that that fits in with our bias, right? That grit builds character. I mean, when we think about uh, parents, right? Let's say that I want my child to do enrichment activities and I want them to do some sort of sport because I believe that physical movement is really important. And so they try soccer. It's true that if they just have one bad day on the field, I don't want them to quit, right? That would be overreacting and um, not being able to see the long view. But what if they just really hate it? You know, what if I want them to play a musical instrument and they're trying the piano and they're just like really bad and it's very clear that they're never going to be good 
it's not something they're ever going to do for the rest of their life. And now I'm torturing them in piano lessons every single week. Parents don't let their kids quit in those situations because they feel like it would be a lack of character. But what we're losing sight of in those situations is what was the, what were we trying to accomplish in the first place? Right. So if we're trying to accomplish some sort of enrichment, say movement, and let's say that my child is just not particularly athletic and not particularly good at soccer and they know it, you know, why can't I have them go do something like cross country running or maybe they could work out with a trainer or they could do yoga or they could do something that isn't or, or a different team sport, maybe that they would be more talented at. Maybe they're really tall and they'd be good at volleyball or something, but why can't I switch them to something like that? Or if they're really just musically untalented, why is it music that I have to have them do as the enrichment activity? Maybe I should put them in robotics. Maybe they'd be better at that. So, but we won't do that. So we, as parents even make this mistake and we'll make our kids stick in things that, that just aren't long-term like great for them with the idea that, well, if you quit, it's going to show a lack of character. No kid of mine is going to be a quitter. People will say, I'm making them stick to it so I can build their character. What kind of message is that sending to them into adulthood, right? It's, it's this message that winners never quit and quitters never win. I mean, it's, it's built into our language. And of course, the whole thing is completely absurd. It, it, of course, you shouldn't stick to things for the rest of your life. And by the way, just to be clear, Angela also agrees with that. She yeah. says, you know, that you're supposed to sample a lot of stuff and then the stuff that isn't good, you're supposed to quit. And the stuff yeah. that is good, you should stick to. And we should have that attitude with our kids. Let them sample a lot of stuff. If they don't like it, let them quit. Yeah. And the things that they do tell them to stick to. And I think that that's true character. But that's not the way that society treats it. It's not. And when, one thing that comes up for me and with my parent peers is this fear of closing doors. It's like, well, if I let my kid quit and then they decide to come back later, it's going to be too late. So what? how do you respond to this like fear of closing yeah. doors uh, issue that I think it's not just for parents with their kids. It's for ourselves that we worry that if we leave something and we made a mistake that it'll be too late. And you talk about this actually in terms of academia, which I really relate to, because once you leave academia, it's so hard to come back. And so if there's any shred of hope that you think it might be a possibility, you want to kind of hang on. You don't want to quit. or That's the feeling. Yeah. Anyway. So we can think about two different types of situations. One, which is uh, what Jeff Bezos would call a two-way door decision, but it's uh it's where you can go back to the option that you're rejecting. So look, if my kid doesn't like soccer one year and I have them go do something else, they can clearly come back to soccer their next year. And they can actually be really good at it. There was, there was just a study, I can't remember who the authors are, on people who have performed at elite levels in sports. And they showed they tended to start their sport late. They tended to do like a lot of different sports. And when they were early, when they were younger, they were behind their peers. And we know like famously that's true of like the, I think the Williams sisters who were doing a lot of different things. But so I think that that's generally just, you know, we think that things are one way door much more than they actually are. So uh, we have to remember that for most things that we quit, we can come back to it. Yeah. For most careers that we quit, we can come back to them. Now, there are certain things that are very hard to come back to. So certainly if I get divorced, 
um, that really reduces the possibility and end up back with the same person. Except for Elizabeth Taylor. Except for, <laughs> <Just> kidding. <laughs> well, yes, that's true. But it would be rare, right? <laughs> right. Um, there are certain academic fields where that's also true, not all. But humanities would be a good example of that. If you if you uh, leave academia in the humanities, it's really really hard to come back and get a uh, you know to come back in and get a job. I think partly because there just aren't very many tenure track positions in humanities in the first place. If there were more, I think that that there would, that would create more flexibility to move back and forth. Yeah. So there's kind of two two points that we want to make about that. One is that. When it is harder to go back, there are two things that have to be true. One is that you have to be more careful about the decision to start. What I mean by more careful is more deliberative. So it means you shouldn't just go, man, let me try it, right? You should, you should say, let me think about this. Let me do some testing, make sure that I'm, um, I've got enough information that makes me feel like this is the right path for me. So you can think about it as, uh, I guess you can just swipe right to go on a date, but you wouldn't want to just swipe right to get married that day. So, um, and it has to do with how easy is, is it to exit or get back to the situation if you do happen to reject it. So you have to be more thoughtful on the entrance. And then on the exit, you, uh, because it is very hard to come back, you want to be thinking about the exit before you start. Because once it's really hard to come back to it, the forces that make it very hard for us to quit are going to be much stronger. It's going to make it much harder to quit and you're going to tend to hang on longer than you really should because you know that you're going to be closing the door permanently. So that's kind of piece number one. And then that relates to point number two, which is that we are much more tolerant of losses that we might incur from the thing we've already started or the status quo than we are from leaving, from switching, from going and starting something new. And this just has to do with the concept of loss aversion, which is famously, you know, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. And loss aversion is that the concept that when we're trying to decide whether to start something, we will choose options that carry a lower chance of loss, even if they're not as good for us in terms of their how, how, how much we would expect them to help us gain ground toward our goal. So a simple way to think about that is that let's say that we have a choice between two stocks and one uh, has more volatility, but the expected value is much greater. And if it has more volatility, that means we there are sort of bigger losses that might be associated with it, but also commensurately much bigger gains that would be associated with it so that we would end up with more money in the long run if we chose stock A or stock B, which would be very low volatility, not a lot of loss associated with it, but also not a lot of gain associated with it. We'll prefer the second choice. Right? So that's also true of not just stocks, but um, anything that we choose, we don't like the idea. We really get focused on the loss side of the equation. Okay. So it turns out that we apply that asymmetrically to the thing we're already doing versus the thing we're thinking about doing. And so this is where we get a mistake that gets particularly amplified in these sort of, I can't get, you know, the door is going to close on me situation. Even if you're miserable 
So let's say that I've got my academic job, but I'm an adjunct. And I really wish I were a tenure track professor, but I've been at it for 15 years and I haven't gotten that tenure track offer. Or let's say I am a tenure track professor and I just hate it. I just really hate it. I'm miserable. I'm not happy. I don't like the culture. I wish that I could switch to a different university, but I can't get a job at a different university. You know, whatever the reasons are that you hate it, um, you will be more tolerant of that. Even though if I ask you in a year, do you think anything's going to change? I'm sure your answer would be no. Then you would add a, but what if I switch and I go try to find a job outside of academia and I hate it? And I can say to you, but Yale, like, what is the probability you're going to hate the new thing? And you'll acknowledge that it's, you know, that it's a lower probability than the thing you're already hating, but you won't switch because you get focused on that downside outcome that might be associated with the new thing you're doing. And it causes you to stick to the thing that you're already doing because we just tolerate that unhappiness so much more if we've already started it. And this is why, like, particularly for one-way door decisions, we have to be very careful on the start, on the starting side of the equation. Because once we're in it, it's really hard for us to switch. Yeah. Well, and a lot of times, I'm just thinking about marriage. You don't really want to enter into it thinking about how you would exit it. Right. It almost <laughs> seems counterproductive. But so let me actually ask the question b- by contextualizing it. The so quitting decisions as expected value decisions was, it, I think it's really common in the field of behavioral economics, but as a clinical psychologist, I don't often think about it that way. And I really had this light bulb moment when I was reading the example of the ER doctor that you interviewed, yeah. Sarah Olston Martinez, um, because you you sort of framed it as that way. She was really miserable in a job. She'd been miserable for a long time. And you asked her a year out from now, what's the chance that you'll still be miserable in this job? 100%. A year out, if you take a different job, what's the chance that you'll be miserable? Okay, it's less than, you know, uh, yeah. it's more. I think she said 50%. 50, yeah, 50, 50, yeah. because you, you don't know. But it leaves, but sort of in the context of marriage, I feel like framing the question that way might leave out thinking about ways that you can make a situation better. For example, when we think about committed relationships, we can think about expected value based on the past, but it doesn't account for the possibility of working together with a couples therapist or, you know, figuring out a different way Mm -hmm. to proceed. And so how do you wisely use expected value decisions in the context of futures that are influenced by what we might do differently? Yeah. So let me just preface with Sarah Olson Martinez. I actually asked her all of those questions. So the way that that narrative is framed in the book, I'm just, it's really just talking about expected value, but I will tell, I'll give you a hint to the behind the scenes conversation where I said to her, how long have you been happy, unhappy? So her answer was, um, she'd been really unhappy for over three years. Okay, so now I know that this is a persistent problem, right? I said, well, what's the part of the job that you like? She said, well, the part of the job I like the best is actually being an ER doctor, but not the hospital administrator part. Could you go back to it? I asked her. She said, I mean, I could, but that still wouldn't make me happy because there were things about reimbursements and what doctors were expected to do. There were a whole bunch of changes in the healthcare system that made it so even that part of the job, which was the reason why she had entered the work, wasn't really, you know, on balance, wasn't making her happy, right? I asked, had you talked to your bosses? Had you, so so we actually went through all of those things and she had actually done all of those things. Uh, So those aren't included in the story, but um, she had done all of those. 
So let's think about how you can build that into the quitting decisions. So let's imagine that you're really unhappy in a situation. The time to quit is not the moment that you go, man, I'm really unhappy. That is probably going to be a pretty bad decision, just as as the time to stick is not in that moment to say, I'm just going to stick it out. Neither of those is actually true, right? So, and that's because in the moment when we're facing down the decision, as you know from your work, everything feels really big and it's really hard for us to get to the long view. So instead, what I ask people, and I do this um, not so much with marriage, although I've done this with people in marriages before, but in my coaching work with executives, it's very often about whether you should exit an employee. Um, so, so it is very relational. It's very relational. And I think that people think about, um, executives as just like cutthroat, whatever, but I've never met an executive that's good at exiting an employee. Um, Mm. they don't, they never do it too fast. They never do it willy nilly. They always hang on too long. They always believe they can coach them into a good place. And it's almost never true. It's sometimes true, sometimes, (laughs) sometimes true, but, but the way that we do this actually allows for that to occur. So basically what I, what I say is, let's take the marriage case. Okay, you're really unhappy. How long would you be okay, given what your values are? How long would you be okay with this situation as is? Right? Um, so if they're coming to me saying, you know, it's really awful, I'm thinking I want to leave, I'm assuming that this is not a tolerable situation. Right? So, so let's say that they say, um, I, I, I'd be okay. Like I can power through this for another six months. Let's just assume six months. So now what I would say is, okay, tell me, imagine it's six months from now. So now I'm getting them out of the moment. I'm saying, okay, you've told me I can power through this for six months or the executive can have the employee underperforming in the way that they are for another six weeks. It doesn't matter. Um, at the end of that period, tell me what it looks like if things are good. Okay, so we sort of write down what does that look like, right? And then I say, tell me what things are look like. What are the signals that things aren't getting better for you um, and that it's time to leave? Okay, so we, we get both of those things written down. So what we're doing is developing a set of what are called kill criteria. You can call them exit criteria if you want to be a little sweeter. <laughs> um, they're called kill criteria. And it's basically, here's the benchmarks that we need to hit to tell me that things are actually going in a good direction. Here are the things that I could see in the future that would tell me that things are not in a good direction. So now we have those two things set. And here's the thing. You don't then just allow the world to happen for six months. Instead, what you follow it with is, okay, so what are the inputs now? So what are the things that I need to do as an individual um, or in collaboration with the other person They're going to help me to get to that good version of the future. And I need to communicate to that person what a good version of the future looks like. So taking it out of marriage, let's take it to the employee relationship. I need to go sit down with the employee and say, look, things aren't going well. You're not performing well in your job. Um, Let's talk about what we're going to do over the next two months to uh, make this happen. But first let's sit down and let's agree, you know, what, what do I expect to see from you in terms of behavior and output that would tell me that things have turned around? Cause I, I know you can turn it around, right? Let's talk about what the signals are, both in what you're feeling, what I'm feeling, what we're seeing in terms of your work that would tell us that it's time to have a conversation and actually exit. 
great. So you agree to that stuff together. It might involve like writing a job description and saying, you know, you have to actually be live, you know, living up to this job description. And then you say, tell me what you need from me and tell me what you need, right? Tell me what coaching you need from me. Do you need me to step up my one-on-ones? Uh, do you need more clear guidance? So on and so forth. So you kind of work out what are those inputs going to be. Um, and that way you're not just saying, oh, I'm imagining some future and here's what needs to happen. And then I'm going to go to sleep like Rip Van Winkle and then wake up and hope that things are better. Yeah. So there always has to be that idea of what are the actions? What are the behaviors that are going to help us to actually achieve that future? And I think that one thing that um, does get missed is that idea of being really clear with the other person. Here's what I expect to see. Like, this is what good would be for me so that we're very, and this is what bad would be for me so that we're super clear. I think that when we don't sit down and do this, it's like, I'm unhappy in the marriage. We're going to go do couples counseling. And then you just sort of start talking and you haven't set a deadline. And I do think that you need a deadline. You haven't sort of said at that deadline, here are the things that I'm going to be very clear with you what I, what I need here. What would, what I think happy would look like. I, I love that for the business place. And I, I love it even more for, for couples counseling as I do a lot of couples counseling. And I, I always establish therapy goals and we set out a certain number of sessions, but I actually, this is informing me to be really clear about a yeah. timeline and to get even more concrete than I am in terms of what people are hoping to see that would sort of be good enough to suggest, okay, this marriage is viable versus I don't think so. Yeah. And I think that what, I think that by doing this, what ends up happening is that the, if you do end up exiting, the exit is, is a smoother, happier exit because you've created a couple of things in in doing this. One is just by being clear, right? It's, and by setting a deadline, it kind of stops that, but I know I can turn it around. I promise I'll be better. Um, you know, that kind of like can loop forever and ever and ever, right? Like where you've got people who they're just completely miserable and they're complaining to you separately. And then you see them in a six months and they're completely miserable and they're complaining to you separately. And then you see them in six months and they're completely miserable and it's on because you haven't actually been really clear. And I think the clarity is actually incredibly helpful, um, for getting people there. But then the other thing is that, um, you know, if you take whether it's the employee, employer or couples is that setting out what good looks like, what is the deadline, you know, sort of that timeline, that, that stop point, what are the kill criteria? You're working through what that would be for yourself, but you're, then you're sitting down with the other person in a collaborative way. So you ask the employee to also write that down for themselves yeah. and then you come together and you, then you work through together. So now you have this agreement. And that agreement creates endowment to the decision. So you're both now owners of that decision. The world is not happening to you. It's not unfair. It's nothing because you sat down and you've agreed to this together. And now what that does is open up an agreement to the quitting decision, which is a decision that's actually quite taboo. It's quite emotionally fraught. But because you're casting it into the future, it takes a lot of that kind of, um, uh, you know, that, that emotional, uh, piece that causes so much friction out of it because you're not saying to them, you're 
you're, I'm going to fire you now, which is what people don't want to do. Yeah. Let's talk about what the future is going to look like, which people tend to be much more rational about. Yeah. So one thing that I think comes up probably in the workplace and definitely in marriages and also, I don't know, in creative endeavors, for example, is like this, the sunk cost fallacy, which you talk a lot about in the book. And I, I'll just share that my first introduction, again, because I'm a psychologist and not a behavioral economics person, was uh, with a friend I was going skiing with. And the husband of my friend is a hedge fund manager. I was in grad school, so money was super tight and we were going skiing and the day was freezing, but I was hell bent on going. And what he told me is that I was falling prey to the sunk cost fallacy. So I, I think about that a lot, this idea that you've already put so much into it. And so What I think sometimes happens and holds people back from having the kinds of conversations that you're describing is this fear that they're going to come to a point where it's going to become so obvious that they have to leave. And it feels like I can't. I already put too much into this. Like I have, for example, I have a child in this marriage with my partner who I really am unhappy with. Or if I leave this job, I'm going to have to start over. And that feels so overwhelming. And so I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the sunk cost fallacy and some of the ways that we can manage this feeling like it starting over would be too much for us. So yeah, so let me talk about the marriage piece first. So one of the things that I want to be really clear about is that nobody, nobody can decide for you. And he's not trying to tell you to leave your marriage, neither am I. Yeah. Um, <laughs> when you should quit or when, when you shouldn't. So I I think that it's a good example. So, so if I'm, if I'm in a marriage with no children, um, it's a simplifier, right? Because that's sort of like, I'm an employee and I've got an employer and the employer comes to me and says they're unhappy. And then I say, I can turn it around. And it's a very similar type of conversation. Um, if you have a child, this is where, what your, what your values are, right. Uh, really matters. So, um, how much do you value the happiness of your child over the happiness of you? Um, the happiness of your child being part of your own happiness. Um, but also, uh, at what point is the unhappiness of you and your partner in that relationship now going to make your child unhappy? Right. So th- these are things that you sort of have to work through. That's all rational. What's not rational, though, is to say, well, I have a child, so I can't leave. That's not rational. Um, in the same sense as saying, I've put 10 years into this marriage, so I can't leave, right? I have so much invested in it, so I can't leave. So if, if it's that it's, I have a child, um, so that means that I have to stay because we have this thing together, right? It's like, well, that's not true because if what you're doing is really trying to think about the happiness of the child, we all know that there are circumstances where the marriage is so fraught that the child is unhappy or where one of the partners, like maybe I want to leave because my partner is behaving in a toxic way, right? Then sticking it out is no longer noble because I'm subjecting my child to a toxic environment in that particular case, right? So we need to sort of tease those, those two things out. So there's, there's sort of the rational side of I have values about my happiness versus my child's happiness. Um, versus I can't leave just because I have a child, right? So, so I just want to kind of set that aside to, to say that uh, there's some rationality to that, but it can get to a point where it's not. So let's take the sunk cost fallacy kind of separate from that. Maybe we can simplify with marriage. Let's just assume that you're in a relationship and um, you don't have any children. Let's simplify it. Or you're in a career. 
what happens to us is that we make the mistake of taking into account what we've already put into something and trying to decide whether to continue and spend more. And by spend more, I mean spend more time, effort, it could be money um, to continue on. So let's think about a very simple example of how that might express itself. Um, Let's say that I buy a stock that's trading at 50 and it's now trading at 40. The question is, should I continue to hold onto it or should I sell it? Now, in stocks, holding is the exact same thing as buying. So we can now say, what's the comparison between I bought it at 50 and it's trading at 40. Do I want to keep holding it or do I want to sell it? Versus I've never owned the stock before and I'm coming fresh to the decision. It's trading at 40 and I do my analysis. Is it a stock that I want to buy? So that's what we want to compare. So we get apples to apples. And if the answer is uh, no, I don't want to buy it at 40 when I'm fresh to the decision because I'm looking at sort of what's happening with the stock and I just don't think that it's worth it. Then even if I bought it at 50 and it's now trading at 40, I ought to sell it because I'm saying when I'm fresh to the decision and I have no history with it, that it's not an asset that I would want to own. So therefore, just because I already owned it doesn't mean that I should continue to own it if it's not something I would buy that day. Um, But people do continue to hold it. Uh, It's been very well demonstrated that um, in situations where people would otherwise not buy it, they will hold it um, if they already own it. And they will say things like, otherwise, I can't get my money back. Yeah. So they'll say stuff like that. (laughs) Um, How will I get my money back? I can't get it back. But of course, that's silly because that money is already gone. And what you should care about is what's the best thing for me to put my money into in the future. So now let's take that out of stocks. And let's think about um, an example with like uh, a job. So uh, I'm in a job. And um, I've done so much training and, you know, I've done all the onboarding and I've learned the ropes. I've got the culture figured out. I know my job pretty well, but I hate it. And I've hated it for a really long time. So now the question is, should I switch to a new job? What you'll hear, hear people say, and we've already talked about the one thing that people will say is, what if I hate the new one? So we've already talked about that. That's the loss aversion problem. But what people will say is, but I've put so much time and energy and now I've done all the onboarding and I've done all this training and I don't want all of that to go to waste. So it's a sense of like wasting, right? Yeah. But the question is, if you, if I just dropped you in today and you could observe this job that you're doing, and how hap- unhappy you are, would you want to take this job today? Is this the job that you would start? Anytime the answer is no, you're supposed to leave. But people don't leave because they're afraid that they'll have wasted the time. Now, this happens in relationships too. I'm miserable in this relationship. Again, take kids out of the equation. I'm miserable in this relationship. Okay, why don't you leave? Well, because I put so much time into it. I've put my heart and soul into it. I've already been in the relationship for two years. I have so much invested in in it. Okay, but if you knew two years ago that this was what the relationship was going to look like today, you wouldn't have started it. Yeah. You would, you would, and, and I would argue that two years ago, if I showed you a future that looks like this, 
And I said, what would you do in this situation? You would say, I'd leave. Whether it's the job or the relationship, you would say, well, there's no way I would stay in that relationship. And this is where we get down to this problem of what's called escalation of commitment, which is related to sunk cost, which is that we have the intuition that when we get signals from the world that things are not going well, that we're not actually gaining ground toward our goals, we will walk away. And we don't. And a lot of it is this fear of waste. And the thing that people get wrong about waste is that waste is not a backward-looking problem. It's a forward-looking one. It's not about what I have already wasted. That's gone. It's am I in the service of worrying about what I might have wasted in the past going to continue to waste more in the future? So if I'm in a relationship with no kids and I'm incredibly miserable and I stay in that because of all the time I've already been into it, that is time that I can't go find somebody who is going to fulfill what I need as a human being in a relationship because that's not what's being fulfilled now. Yeah. I think that's so brilliant. And I I love that phrase, waste is not a backward-looking problem, it's a forward-looking problem. And it reminds me of this really interesting line of research about cohabitation before marriage Mm -hmm. or before engagement, where the researchers talk about this issue of sliding versus deciding that people cohabit and then they feel like they've already invested into Mm -hmm. a home together and pets or furniture. And so they end up getting married or having babies sort of because they're already on that path as opposed to deciding like, this is what I want to commit to. And I think maybe that does kind of get back to your recommendation to them a little bit thinking about exiting, but maybe it's more just thinking about, do I want to make this commitment today? Do I want to make this commitment, you know, six months from now and a year from now and sort of looking at it with fresh eyes as opposed to just thinking of it as one continuous choice. Yeah. And one of the things I want to say about kill criteria is that there's a lot of things where it's really important to do it at the start. So if you're making an investment, you should create kill criteria at the start. If you're pursuing a sale, you should create kill criteria. If you're, um, if you're on a house hunt, it's good to create kill criteria. Uh, if you're climbing up a mountain, um, when you're entering into marriage, I don't necessarily think that you you need to do that. I think it would be good at the beginning of the relationship to do that so th- because you're, you're trying to sort of stop things before you get to the point where you have so much sunk cost built up that you just randomly end up getting married, which is what you're describing, right? So you can create, you can create those as you're entering into the relationship. Like it's a new relationship. What are the things that I could see from this person that would tell me that this isn't the right thing for me, to, for me in the long run? I think that's fine. Once you do decide to get married, I think that there are reasons that have to do with the structure of marriage that you might want to do that right at the beginning. But when, as soon as you're unhappy, it's a really good thing to do, right? As soon as you're saying like, oh gosh, I'm really not feeling good in this relationship. It's good to do. And it's particularly good to do with somebody from the outside, like a therapist, right? Who's going to be able to see that better for you and be able to negotiate those conversations yeah. with your partner. Um, so at that point you would re-trigger them. But I really do believe like on the going into the relationship to say, okay, I think I'm all starry eyed. I think this person's amazing, but let me imagine it's a year from now and I'm unhappy. Like, what do I think are the things that I'm saying that would make me unhappy so that you're thinking about that prior to actually making the very big commitment? Um, I do love, I, I, now I'm like sad because I wish that it were in my book 
the study about cohabitation. That's an amazing example of how we have to be very, very careful on the front end about sunk cost. So what kill criteria are trying to help you do is to tackle the sunk cost problem on the front end. Because the problem is, I know your your friend said, oh, you're succumbing to sunk cost. But if your friend were in the same situation, they also would succumb to it because knowing about it doesn't really help you very much. But you can, you can see it in other people. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's very easy to sort of see it in other people go, oh, I know what you're doing. Um, but it's actually really hard for us to overcome it ourselves. Like knowing about it doesn't help you in the least, actually. But can I, can, I'm curious. Do you think that there's an evolutionary function to sunk cost fallacy? Like, is there a reason that it's so embedded? I mean, all of the biases that you talk about, I'm sure, have some kind of evolutionary function. But I was just trying to think about, like, what is the sunk cost fallacy? Because it seems so problematic, and yet it is so omnipresent. So I'll tell you a just-so story, because all evolutionary explanations are just-so Yeah, that's true, too. (laughs) So here's my just-so story. Uh, Survival was really hard, and you had to, like, go on these long treks or these hunts where you were trying to find food. And if you didn't find food, you were going to die. And you couldn't just say like, uh, oh, this is really hard and it's too cold today. I'm going to turn around and come back the next day to try to find food. So uh, I think that um, there, there's just a lot, there was a lot of evolutionary pressure to like, look, you have to keep climbing the mountain because you can't stop here. You'll die. Yeah. Right. Like you didn't have a choice about like turning around. We live a much more luxurious life with lots and lots of opportunities. (laughs) Yeah, you and don't have to climb a mountain to get uh, to get dinner. <laughs> right, exactly. So, um, you know, and then the other thing, of course, I think is that um, just again, completely just so story, uh, is that you, the humans who survived is the, the diaspora. So you had a whole bunch of people continuing, like trying to get to Europe, right? Most of whom died, but the ones who got there survived. Uh, And that was good for humanity as a whole. And I think that this is one of the things that we have to remember is that what's true for an individual is not necessarily true for what I'd call the portfolio, right? So it's really good for humanity for a bunch of people to be trying to invent something where each person is actually operating at negative expected value. But the chances that one of them actually does it is so good for humanity that humanity itself would prefer that all of these people are sort of like pushing ahead, even though most of them are, 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 are have no, like very little chance. And all of them have very little chance of actually getting um, to where they want to go. But if one of them does, it's so good for the portfolio, right? So uh, humanity is going to thrive if that happens. So the portfolio holder often will have different values than the individuals yeah. in the, in the portfolio. And I kind of think I, I always, I often think about, um, I mean, it, it happens not to be true, but I think that's where like you get like college sports coaches saying, don't have a plan B uh, because yeah. from their perspective as the portfolio holder, right? They're like, no, I just want to make sure that I get what my one, you know, Michael Jordan or whatever. And I need to make sure that they don't have any other options so that they can stick to it. I don't think that they're consciously thinking that, but I think that that's sort of how that's being expressed. I actually don't think it's true that that will create more success in that particular case, but you can see where that as the person who has the team, you're trying to get everybody to only focus on basketball, even if it's not great for each of the individuals. So, so that's just kind of my just so story on the evolution of some cost (laughs) fallacy. One is like, it didn't make sense. You could, you know, you couldn't stop what you were doing just because it was hard because 
you were trying to survive and you would die. Uh, and that there was, you know, the people who persisted to, you know, march from Africa all the way to Europe and survive that track, right? Obviously, we're uh, having to overcome a lot of different obstacles yeah, um, in order to be able to do that. And they needed to not just sort of sit down and say, this is too hard. Yeah. Well, thank you for entertaining me with your just those stories. I know evolution. Yes, and nobody should take none of that should be taken to the bank. Don't say, well, Annie Duke said this is the evolutionary reason for this because I'm making it up. Yeah, fair. I still think it's useful to think about like, huh, what is the function of that? So thank you for no, which is why I've obviously entertained it. I didn't, I didn't make that up off the top of my head. Like I have actually thought about these things, and that that is the function that I believe is occurring. So, um, you know, there you go. (laughs) I think it makes sense. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right. So given that it is so hard to quit, we're built in with all of these biases. Who knows why? We have some stories to explain maybe. Um, But it is true that it's hard to quit. And so you have all these strategies to help folks quit more strategically. And one of my favorites is monkeys and pedestals. And I know you didn't come up with it, but I wonder if you can explain it as as a tool that folks can use. Sure. Yeah. So this comes from Astor Teller, who uh, is the CEO of X, which is Google's in-house innovation hub, um, just to give credit where credit is due. So I, there, I think there's a really fun application to relationships for this that we can talk about. But the way the monkeys and pedestals goes is it's a mental model for understanding, like when you're entering into something, how are you supposed to enter in to the thing that you're doing? Again, thinking about, look, once you start something, what we know is that there's going to be a lot of pressure for you not to stop it. Um, and this is really where the problem is, right? Is that once you start it, you're going to have sunk costs, you're going to be endowed to it, it's going to become the status quo, you're going to be tolerant of losses associated with the thing you've already started in the way that you aren't tolerant of losses when you're thinking about starting something new. Like there's just a whole bunch of stuff that just sort of like piles up on you and like lands on your head once you've started something. So Astro Teller had the insight that you want to be really careful when you're thinking about starting something. First of all, about have a have a framework to think about, is it worth starting? And if it is worth starting, how do you actually get to the answer of whether it's worth it to continue as quickly as possible? Okay. And the reason why you want to do that is that when we start things, it's under conditions of great uncertainty. So we've all had that feeling of, I wish I knew then what I know now. What he says is when you, when you figure that out, you want to quit that. I wish I knew then like, oh, that was really bad. I, I wish I had never started that when at that moment, you actually want to quit. And these forces are going to stop you from doing that. And number two, you want to get to that knowledge. 
as fast as possible. So that brings us to monkeys and pedestals. So imagine that you're trying to train a monkey to juggle flaming torches while standing on a pedestal in the town square. There's two <laughs> pieces to that puzzle. Well, you'd make a lot of money, right? You would make so much money. Right. I would like, be at that show every day. <laughs> yeah. Like standing in Quincy Market, like yeah. people would be throwing hundreds at you. Um, <laughs> so so the, so you're, you want to tackle this project. There's two pieces to the project. One is, can you train the monkey to juggle the flaming torches? That's piece number one. And piece number two is building the pedestal that they're going to stand on. And his point is that you should never, ever start by building the pedestal. You should always start by seeing if you can train the monkey to juggle the flaming torches. So let's think about why that is. Well, there's no point in building the pedestal if you can't actually train the monkey, right? The whole, the the act is not a monkey standing on a pedestal. It's a monkey juggling flaming torches while standing on a pedestal. So if you can't actually accomplish that piece of it, then there's no point in building the pedestal. It's actually wasted effort. And if we think about the sunk cost problem, it now creates a sunk cost, which is, but I put all this time into building this beautiful pedestal. How can I so pretty, walk yeah. away from this um, act? So you want to tackle that harder part first. That's number one. Number two is that if you build the pedestal, you don't learn anything new. So it, it's the idea of what what's the unknown, right? So so there's kind of two pieces. What's the hardest part, and what's the most unknown? So so the the mon- the monkey juggling the flaming torches is the thing you don't know if you can do. Okay, so that's the bottleneck, right, in terms of our own knowledge. We don't know if we can actually do that. We do know it, that we can build a pedestal because uh, people have been building pedestals for a very long time. Um, so uh, we already know that thing. So we always want to be tackling the unknown rather than the known because that brings us to the third problem, which is that if we tackle the known thing first, it gives us the illusion of progress. Right. So it, there, it, there's no progress involved in building the pedestal because, because you are, again, you already know you can do it. So you haven't actually, you haven't actually made any progress towards your goal, but it gives you a false sense of progress, which we know is really bad. Again, if we're thinking about like sunk cost or endowment, that kind of thing. So he's saying, look, identify the bottleneck. What's the really hard thing? What's the big unknown and tackle that first. Okay. So sometimes when you do that, you never start. So he did that famously with a project called the Hyperloop. So the Hyperloop is we're going to have a, a vacuum tube train yeah, that's going to go from coast to coast and it will, the train will get sucked through a vacuum tube and you'll be able to get from New York to LA in two and a half so hours. So fast. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so he got pitched that over at X and after the pitch, they applied monkeys and pedestals to it. And they identified two monkeys. So again, we're just trying to say, like, what are the monkeys? And you should do this with anything that you're starting. What are the monkeys? What are the big unknowns? What are the hard part? What's the hard part? And in this particular case, what he identified was two monkeys. One was regulatory. So if you're going to bring some sort of infrastructure from coast to coast, you have to go through lots of different townships, each of which has has different issues about like right of way and ordinances. And then there's eminent domain issues and so on and so forth. So the regulatory problem actually is quite difficult to solve for something like that. And then the second monkey, probably the more impactful, is that nobody knew 
whether you could start and stop the train without killing everybody on board. That's a hard monkey. <laughs> yeah. Well, because you know it's going really fast. Yeah. <laughs> right? So the question is when you're trying to slow that thing down, because you're going to stop along the way, right? When you're going to slow that thing down, is everybody going to die? <laughs> okay. So they then said, okay, let's try to figure this out. Are these monkeys that we can tackle? And when they thought about the regulatory problem, they said, well, you know, as he put it, we're Peter Pans with PhDs. I don't know if that's a, something that we can tackle. So they sort of saw that as a pretty intractable monkey. But then when they turned over to, to the other problem of, will you kill everybody on board? What he realized is that the only way that you could really know that is to get the thing up to speed. Okay, so when it was pitched, the vacuum tube technology itself had already been proven out. So that wasn't a monkey. So it wasn't like somebody just invented the idea in its head and the question of, could you actually suck a train through a vacuum tube? Um, that wasn't a monkey that had already been solved. So now we have this other one. And he said, well, um, so you've proven that you can actually get the train to go. But what we don't know is if you're going to kill anybody and we can't know that unless you actually get the train up to full speed. So they did the calculations and said, well, what's it going to take? How much of this thing are we going to have to build? And building the actual track, building the actual system is a pedestal. Remember, it's a known. So you already know you can do that. How much of it will we have to build to try to figure out if you can do any of this safely? And what he realized is almost the whole thing. Uh. That was the thing he realized, like pretty much the whole thing. At which point he said, I'm just going to have to build this ginormous pedestal in order to, to solve the monkey. And I don't want anything to do with that. That's not the type of project that I want to do. Yeah. And so he abandoned it. Now, how long it took him to get to know there was 15 minutes. Okay, so 15 minutes, he said, no way, no how. We're not going to build a cross-country pedestal in order to try to figure out this problem. Now, what's interesting is post-publishing the book, there was an article that came out about the Hyperloop. So he passed on it, but other people said yes. And one of them was Virgin. And they are now, I think, 160 or so million in. They have only gotten the train up to one-sixth of the speed. So they haven't done any safety test yet because they've, I think, think they've spent about 60 million so far, just like building enough of it to get it up to one-sixth of the speed. They haven't gotten it to go any faster yet because they don't have enough of it built. And guess what they're running into? Regulatory problems. Yeah. So interestingly enough, and this has to do with like why monkeys and pedestals are so powerful, is that I don't think there's any doubt that if Virgin knew what they know now, they would not put any more money into it. Yeah. Okay. They, they you know, they would they would say at that time, we're not going to start. Like, and if we knew that this was the situation where we were in, we would stop. But having put so much into it, having spent sixty million dollars on it, they've now they're now going to spend a hundred million more, and they've now pivoted to instead of thinking about it as a passenger system. They're thinking about it as a cargo system. But the issue is that that's not solving a new problem. Like it's not, we don't have a problem getting cargo from one end of the country to another. That's that it's not even a problem that anybody really cares about, but they won't abandon it. So, so now we can see like why monkeys and pedestals are so powerful because he under, he really understands Astro Teller that if you don't think about this in advance, you're going to get stuck where Virgin is. I'm sort of thinking 
where how this applies to relationships. I could yeah. imagine one asking oneself, what's the monkey here? Like, what are the things that would be hard to solve down the road in this relationship? We like to travel together, but maybe how do we fight or right. do we have similar visions? Yeah. So uh, I always, I, I have actually given this advice to people who are in new relationships. I, I always tell them if they can afford it, if they, if they have the ability to do this, take, take an overseas flight and go visit somewhere where you're going to be jet lagged and you're going to lose your luggage <laughs> and you're going to be really, you know, tired and you're not going to speak the language. <laughs> and, you know, like it, that's something where like you're doing something fun, but you're really, there's going to be a lot of stress involved. So that you can see like, how are you, how are you problem solving together? How are you thinking about like these kinds of stresses? I always think that's really good. There's a very big monkey in any relationship that you're entering into, which is how do you want to raise your children? Yeah. Right. Like what are your values? Are, are your values the same in terms of, you know, how much discipline, how much not discipline, you know, do you want, do you want like free range kids? <laughs> are you going to be a helicopter parent? What type of education do you want them to have? And I'm sure you know in your seat that nobody has those conversations. No, yeah, they right. It, and they're so useful. I, I have an, a really funny quote that I included in my book on working parenthood, which is yeah. from Will Ferrell. Before you marry a person, you should first make them use a computer with slow internet service to see who they really are. Yes, see, <laughs> exactly. Right, that's so good. You know, like take, take a, a nephew or a niece for a whole weekend, right? Like- something to test that, but really sit down and have those conversations about like, what is your vision for, for how you're going to have kids? Listen, my first marriage, we didn't have a single conversation about it. I think because you assume like, oh, we love each other and uh, da, da, da. So obviously when we have kids, it's going to be amazing. And then I found out that we had completely different ideas about how you raise a child, how much discipline there was supposed to be, what you were supposed to do when your kid was screaming in the middle of a target for a toy, were you supposed to give them a toy or not give them a toy? And I was on the, no, I'm going to march right out of the target. I don't even care if my basket is full. I'll come back later. And he was, I'm going to buy them a toy. So that was a, you know, we didn't know that before we had kids. And that particular difference in attitude was a really big problem for us. So, and this is despite the fact that we were, we were really got along well, we were really good friends, we were intellectually compatible. And as a matter of fact, after we got divorced, we were really good friends and we got along really well and we're intellectually compatible, but we were miserable for a long section. You know, this is despite the fact that, you know, once we relieved the stress, we were then very good friends again. Yeah. But if we had talked about it beforehand, that would have solved a lot of the issues. Like for one thing, maybe we wouldn't have had that big difference because we would have talked about it beforehand and it wouldn't have evolved naturally, but we never had the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. You could have figured out that monkey early. Yeah. So I think that that's really powerful advice. There's so much good advice in your book, but my other super favorite advice is to move away from past fail goals and appreciate that quitting a larger goal doesn't mean that you haven't accomplished something. And I wonder, I was as I was reading it, I was thinking that it, for me, it really fits into this concept of growth mindset. Mm-hmm. And and I wonder if you've thought about that body of research and, and thinking about the way that you frame quitting sort of in that context. I have it, but now I wish 
that I was in my book because now that you say it, it's totally obvious that they have to be related to each other. Um, so let me let me explain the, the downside of goals. So we think about goals as universally kind of good things. But there's this problem. So here, like, so let's separate out. With sunk costs, we sort of are worried about having wasted what we've already spent. But there's another issue that has to do with mental accounting. And you can sort of feel it in this stock example that I gave. You buy a stock at 50, it's now trading at 40. If I sell it, how can I get my money back? So what that means is that you're short, you're short of where you bought it. Okay. And that, that's what the problem is. And Richard Thaler, Nobel laureate in, in economics has talked a lot about how we do not like to close mental accounts in the losses. So remember I said, of course, it shouldn't matter what's happening with that particular stock. What we should care about is sort of where is our money across all the investments that we make, but it's not the way that our mental accounting works, right? We don't sort of think about, oh, but I'm doing really well across everything. We're just sad about the thing that we're losing at. I gave an example actually in Thinking in Bats, my third, two books ago. I love is- that book. Everyone should read that one too. It, it, it really just changes the way that you think about decision-making. It's, it's very powerful. Oh, thank you. I give the example of like, if you just got a big promotion, but now you're standing on the side of the road and it's freezing rain and your tire is flat and you don't have a jack, you're not like, oh, I'm balanced. I'm doing really good. Right. You're just like, ah, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. Why is my life so crappy? Right. Because we're not good at getting out of like one account. So, so in that moment, you're just like, this account is really down. And that's all I'm thinking about. And you're not like, but, oh, but I got a promotion on balance. I'm great. That is not the way any of us feel. So this is very similar to that. So you buy the stock, you open up a mental account for that as well as a physical account, but you have the mental account. And once you're below 50, you're now in the losses. We don't like to close mental accounts in the losses. Okay, so that's just like sort of the wonky economics thing. But now how does that relate to goals? Well, that's because the goal has become 50, what you bought it at. And I can actually change that. It's not even what you bought it at, right? It's like if you bought it at 50 and it went to 75 and now it goes to 55, even though like on my physical ledger, on my real life ledger, I'm up five. In my mental account, I'm down 20 because now there's a new goal, which is 75. I've set a new goal. Okay, so that's like with stocks. Okay, so now let's think about something like a marathon. So there's this woman, Siobhan O'Keefe, who in 2019 was running the ninth. This was uh, so painful to read, just, just to let you <laughs> I know. know right? <laughs> so she's running the London Marathon in 2019. She's a marathoner. And on mile eight, she breaks her leg, her fibula bone snaps. So as you can imagine, the medical personnel are like, hey, should probably stop running. She doesn't. She keeps running and she actually finishes the race on this broken leg. All right, so let's think about what's going on there. So thing number one is, I know that I felt when I read that, separate and apart from, ooh, pain, like, oh, badass, (laughs) right? Like, I wish I had that kind of grit. But why would I wish I had that kind of grit, right? This is where we get this, you know, this problem of like grit. We, we sort of think about it as so like, oh man, like heroic. Makes, you badass, makes you so, yeah. so much character. But of course that's ridiculous. She's a marathoner. She's now running on a broken leg. She may create like a compound fracture. She's certainly sacrificing future marathons that she might be able to, to run in the service of just finishing that one. She may do permanent injury to herself where she can never run again. So 
I, I don't think that I should admire that she kept going. And yet part of me does. So I got, you know, and this is the problem. Like I know about it and I'm still like, oh, I totally want to do that. <laughs> the second thing that we should realize is that I, I think that we can agree that if you said to her, hey, you're going to break your leg on mile eight. Do you want to start? That she would say, no, of course, I'm not going to start if I'm going to break my leg on mile eight. And if you said to her, well, let's imagine that like you didn't know that, but you just broke your leg on mile eight, would you keep going? And I'm sure she would say, no, there's no way I would keep going. And yet she did. And she's not unusual because three other people did it in the same marathon. And if you look at any marathon, you're going to see all sorts of people finishing marathons with broken legs or broken ankles or some sort of tear or whatever is going on. So this is happening all the time. So let's think about why that is. The answer is because there's a finish line. So the finish line is the goal and it's a fixed object. In this case, 26.2 miles. Now, why do I know it's a finish line problem? Because she didn't continue and only run 13.1 miles, which would be a half marathon. <laughs> which should also be right. <laughs> but that, that particular race, that wasn't the finish line. Right. So she ran a half marathon along the way, but she didn't stop at that point because that, that race, the goal was 26.2 miles. If the goal is five kilometers, that's how long you'll run. And here's the other thing is that if the goal is 26.2 miles, have you any, ever seen anyone be like, Oh, well, I feel good though. I'm just going to keep running. Of course not because they reached the goal. So here's where we get this pass-fail nature of goals. As soon as you hit 26.2 miles, you've passed and you stop. Yeah. But anything short of that, we're now in the losses. In comparison to the goal, right? We're short of that goal. That is a fail. And so we don't want to ever stop short of the goal. Now we can think about it from an objective standpoint. She was eight miles past the starting line. So why is it that cognitively we don't think we're in the gains eight miles, right? That we've, we've got accumulated eight miles that we otherwise wouldn't have accumulated. And it's, it's not the way that our mental accounting works. Our mental accounting works in relation to the goal. So this is where we really have to be very careful about the goals that we're setting. Because when we set goals, they tend to be fixed objects, but they're fixed objects in an unfixed or flexible world where the world is changing or we're changing, right? So it's stupid example, right? But if I'm using a pager, the world has moved beyond that. I should probably <laughs> give up the pager, right? Or we could take actually a more serious example, like a company like Blockbuster that was selling uh, physical videotapes or Blu-ray or whatever in a physical location for people to go get, to bring home, to watch on their television. And they had a chance to buy Netflix. They didn't do it, right? Okay, so the world will change on you. So the world was going to streaming and they didn't change along with it. So this is, we want to be sensitive to how the world is changing. If we're climbing up a mountain, uh, the weather may change on us. A fog might roll in. So we want to be sensitive to those things. And then also we want to be sensitive to the way that we change. So this could be physical changes, like my leg could break. But it could also be, you know, I really used to like this job and now I don't. My values have changed. I took this job when I was in my 20s and I, I loved working 80 hours a week. And that was my jam. 
but now I'm in my thirties and I don't want to work 80 hours a week anymore. Okay. So you may change as well. So if, if we're, if we're fixing, you know, a finish line, that's a fixed object, right? The summit of a mountain or the finish line of a marathon or whatever goals we have in terms of like projects or products that we're developing or goals that we have for ourselves. And we don't then take into account, but what, how might the world change that would make it so that that goal no longer makes sense? Or how might I change that would make it so that goal might no longer make sense? Then we're just going to run toward a lot of finish lines with broken legs. And that's what we end up doing. A hundred percent. And this kind of brings us full circle to talking about psychological flexibility because we can persist, you know, as long as it still makes sense to persist. And then if things around us or inside of us change, we can reevaluate. And sometimes the better choice is to quit. And just to sort of double down on why I so much love this is that it it's not, you have this great quote, which is, if you quit something that's no longer worth pursuing, that's not failure. That's a success. And in part because, and this is where it fits into the growth mindset, you've still probably learned a lot and gained something. You, maybe you've learned what doesn't work and right, that's valuable. Well, I mean, that's exactly right. And that that's why, we, so, you know, look, we can think about like, you know, fixed mindset versus growth mindset, right? The idea is that you're always trying to strive for something and that that is, you know, that striving and the learning is always going to be attainable for you, right? And you just have to sort of change the way that you're thinking about the things that you're pursuing and what, what progress means and what accomplishment means and what, what's available to you as a human being in terms of where you can get to. And I think that it, it means it, it gets you to start to think more about across opportunities. And I, this is the really, really sad thing about quitting is that because we think it's such a bad thing to do, number one. And because the cognitive biases are really all lined up against walking away, they, they really are lined up to create a failure to stop thing, that we actually slow our progress down. Because as you just said, look, if I'm doing something that isn't actually causing me to gain ground toward my goals, then by sticking to it, I'm stopping myself from gaining ground to my goals. And yes, if I switch to something new, it's probabilistic, right? If I switch to something new, Will it cause me to gain more ground toward my goals? Well, if the, you know, it's probabilistic. So yes, it's uncertain. But I'm switching from something that certainly is not going to. And that means that I'm going to get to where I want to go faster. And what, what I like to think about is not so much like, uh, you know, obviously, sometimes we have fixed goals, like I'd like to finish writing this book, for sure. <laughs> but I like to think about broadly as I want to be doing things that I just use happiness right? That are causing me to feel fulfilled and happy. And like, I'm a good citizen and I'm growing as an individual. And it's something that I want to be exploring for myself. And that can express itself through a variety of different ways. And tying my identity or the idea that I'm a failure if I stop doing something that I was doing before is going to prevent me from doing that. So I can be a poker player and then I can go give talks on the relationship between poker and cognitive science. And then I can start consulting in that area and then I can start writing books on it. And then I can return to do my PhD. And it's just kind of the way that I have always navigated the world. And I think the reason why is because I had a forced quitting moment when I was in graduate school in the first place. 
And it's interesting because without that, I don't know that I would have ended up navigating the world the way that I did as an, you know, for the rest of my adulthood. I was two seconds from my PhD and got really sick and ended up in the hospital for two weeks, was unable to go and do my job talks. I had to cancel all of them, but I had already scheduled all of them. I mean, that's how done I was. Yeah. And it took me a really long time to recuperate. I was very sick. And during that time that I was recuperating, I just needed money. And that's when I started playing poker. And I, I just really loved it. And then I didn't go, I ended up not going back to academia, at least not for that time. Yeah. But I think that it, it taught me a really valuable lesson that it's not the end of the world, right? That it feels so horrible and like everything's being taken away from you, but that that can actually create opportunity. And obviously it doesn't create opportunity for everybody. I recognize that I was lucky that I found this other opportunity that, that I was really good at. But we need to remember that when we go in to start things, we're doing all sorts of exploration. Do I want to be an academic? Do I want to be a poker player? Do I want to go to business school? Do I want to work at a literary agency? Do I want it? Whatever. Like we're thinking about all the different possibilities. And then we choose something to start and all of that exploration stops. Yeah. Then we just don't, we don't even see the other opportunities that are available to us. And so when you when you are forced to quit, it forces you back into that exploration mode. And I think that that helps you to understand that there are possibilities for you. And you need to sort of grab that and say, even if I walk away from something doesn't mean that it wasn't for anything. And I need to be thinking about what makes me happy and about these broader goals. And one of the things that I like to point out to people about everything that I've done, whether it was graduate student, cognitive psychology, poker player, talking about the intersection between the two, writing these books, consulting, coming back and working with Phil Tetlock and Barb Mellers on forecasting problems, is that there's a thread that I can pull through all of it, which is what I really cared about is decision-making under uncertainty. That's an unfixed goal because there is no I'm done, right? It's let me go try to explore this in a variety of different ways. That's your larger why, which is also what Angela Duckworth talks about underlies grit, but it also underlies quit because it gives you directionality. Right. That's exactly right. And it allows me to, it allows me to move between things, I think a little bit more, a little bit more easily. But again, if I hadn't had that forced quitting event, I don't know that that's, that, that I would have ended up in that place. But it, it, to tell you the truth, it kind of forces you into that mindset. It forces you into a growth mindset because you you have I mean your professional life would otherwise be over. You you right. have to start thinking, okay, well, how can I use this as an opportunity to move forward? And I just wanted to sort of add my own personal experience. So I was reading your book and I'm working on a new book of my own. And I had picked a title and it started to do research and was just feeling so stuck. And I was talking with my partner and I was telling him, you know, I don't want to, but I think maybe I need to turn to a different topic. I, I had, I was like, I threw out the topic and was like, I don't know. And he was like, you should definitely do that. And you can use almost all of what you did, not the title, but you can use a lot of what you already called in terms of the research and use it for this different, it's it's a pretty different topic, but it's still useful. And I was like, yes, I need to quit that title yes, <laughs> because it opens me up for something so much more productive. So 
I think thinking about quitting in this way is so powerful for big decisions and small ones. It just opens you up so much. Yeah, I actually, so, you know, I I talk about writing as as just so much quitting. So, (laughs) you know, and and this is, this is the, this, this is what, this is what I wish would change in the world is that success is built out of both grit and quit. It has to be because you have to quit all the stuff that isn't working and then be willing to stick this to the stuff that is, even though it's hard. So you, you actually can't have success without one, without the other. I just saw a video of Guy, Guy Kawasaki. I think uh, there's two videos. And in the first part, he talks about how when things aren't working, you have to walk away from them in regards to his parents in Japan, moving to Hawaii with nothing, like giving up everything they had there and moving to Hawaii to try to give their children a better life. And then the second video, he says, the secret to my success is grit. And I was like, I'm sure it is. Like, there's no doubt. I mean, part of the secret to my success has been grit. I finished my books that I wrote. Um, but, But we need to start to think about these things living together. So this is where I think about the writing process, right? Is that uh, obviously I have to, you know, writing is very hard and it, you, it's just, you, you, which you can't tell when you read it. When I read your books, I'm, it looks so effortless, right? It's so not. It's <laughs> just, I mean, my editor is uh, like very much a therapist, like where I'm just like, I can't find my way out of the book and I'm never going to finish it. And it's not even any good. And I mean, it's a really hard, arduous process. I mean, separate and apart from just the mechanics of the amount of research that you have to do and the amount of words that you have to produce, it's, it's just psychologically, it's a, it's tough to write a book. It's very, you have to expose yourself to the world to, you have to expose yourself to criticism. Like these things are all very hard. So obviously you have to have grit to write a book, but think about it's, there's so much quitting, whether it's something as simple as, you know, line edits. And I just wrote 2000 words and I've decided now that I need to, to throw them out and not be so endowed to them that they have to stay into the book. I have to listen to what my editor is saying in terms of, do they think that I should change the order of chapters, right? Should I move stories around? Should I rewrite this whole section? And for me, in one case, my editor told me with how to decide that I should throw the first two chapters out, just stop and and start completely over with them. And she was correct. And I'm so happy that she told me to do that. But that, so there's all these like small quits that are small, or in the case of those two chapters, I guess a little bit of a bigger quit. And then there's the quit that you just did, which I've actually done quite a few times. So when I was writing How to Decide, I had to throw out the first two chapters. Then I get to quit. And I had a completely different idea for a book that I had actually started writing a proposal for. And then I just, I was doing some podcasts to promote How to Decide. And I'd already written a proposal for this other book that I was starting to do research on. I still have a deck of the research. And I, when I was promoting how to decide, I started talking about this idea of reversibility, right? And quitting. And I just started to get really obsessed with the topic in a way where I was like, oh my gosh, like, I don't know. I think I have to write this book, even though I had this other book waiting in the wings. So I started to get in touch with people I knew, like Phil Tetlock and Danny Kahneman and, and so on and so forth, and just started talking to them about it. And then my excitement just kept growing. So I, I completely abandoned this other thing that I had already done. I'd already, I'd already shown my editor the proposal. And I was just like, no, you know, I'm not going to do that one. I'm going to do a different one. Let me write a proposal for that instead. 
And now I've, I finished quit and I was like, oh, I'll go back to that other book, right? Because you can go back to things. And I was like, I'll go back to that other book because I kind of like the idea of that other book. And then I was teaching a class and I started getting obsessed with a different topic when I was teaching a cohort. And I was like, oh, I think I need to write that book. And it was a topic that Gary Marcus, um, who's a cognitive psychologist, and people should go to his Substack because it's great. He's I think a- you just retweeted it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> just with everything that's happened with chat GPT and whatnot, he's like a great voice of reason and skepticism that I think everybody should go check out. But we had been talking since the beginning of the pandemic about this particular topic and, you know, just sort of like, oh, aren't you annoyed by this or, you know, whatnot. And then I was, you know, we had been talking and we decided we should write this book together. So now I'm, Again, the, I still have this other proposal sitting there. Maybe that will be the next book after that, but I keep abandoning it. And at some point I need to listen to myself and say, it must not be interesting enough to me. Like, I think that for somebody else to write the book would be really good, but it's for whatever reason, it's not lighting a fire in me. So despite the fact that I put in quite a bit of effort and a lot of research and I wrote a proposal, that's a lot of sunk costs. I was like, no, I can tell it's not for me. And then I'm going to write a completely different proposal instead. Um, and so I, I, you know, the writing process is so much like everybody thinks it's grit, but it's so much quit. And that's what you're experiencing, right? Like, you know, this book is going to be better because you quit the frame. It's the same material, but you're framing it in a different way. Yeah. And it's going to make you happier. It's going to be a better book. Because you're willing to walk away from it, even though you're gritty about act, the actual writing of a book. And right. that, how do those two things live together? And why do we only focus on one side of the equation as the secret to success and not understand that the, it's the calibration between the two? Quit the right stuff, stick to the right stuff. Thank you so much, Annie. I, I'm. This was like so exciting for me. And the book is so powerful. I hope every person picks it up and reads it. I really think it's one of these transformative books that will help you live better. Um, So in addition to reading all of your books, where can people go to find more from you? So you can always go to annieduke.com for sure. But I did just start a Substack, and that's been really fun. So I post, Gary Marcus actually uh, wrote a post for me on Substack about ChatGPT because I got asked a question by a reader And I said, well, I don't like to answer things that I know nothing about because it would be like a random person in a bar pontificating on some sort of topic to you that they don't know anything about. So I'm going to bring in someone who actually does know something about it. But so I do, I do post on there. But um, the other thing is that I schedule through the Substack for people who are paid subscribers uh, for Ask Me Anything for AMAs a year. Um, My first one's coming up pretty soon. And so it, I, I switched to Substack because I felt like it, it was more of a like a two-way conversation. So I used to have a newsletter and I would send the newsletter out and then I wouldn't hear it from anybody who read it. Yeah. And so now with Substack, there's obviously the commenting function. I can open up open threads. So we did like I did a huge open thread last last week where people are just I'm talking to people and it's like super fun. And then we're gonna do AMAs and because I just really like the idea of like building community around this idea of decision making under uncertainty. So Definitely go look at my Substacks. It's called Uncreatively Thinking in Bets. My husband said to me, why'd you call it Thinking in Bets? And I said, because I'm lazy. So, <laughs> so that's why it's called that. Uh, so you can, definitely, you can definitely find me there. And then the other thing, the other place that I would love for people to go visit is the Alliance for Decision Education. And so 
what we're, that's a, a organization that I co-founded along with my husband. And what we're trying to do is bring decision education into K through 12. And the idea is that just as uh, kids get social emotional learning now as part of education through that movement, um, that somebody needs to create a movement for decision education, which is basically, we're not going to teach you like what to think. We want to teach you how to think how to decide. We don't teach you what to decide, but how do you do it? How do you structure decisions? How do you think about your own habits? How do you navigate the information to try to start to query it, to try to figure out like what's actually true? How do I model that information? How does it inform my actions in the future? And then also to start to really get people to teach kids to think probabilistically, right? Things aren't yes or no, pass, fail, but they're a little bit more open-ended than that and being comfortable with that would be really good. And so we are trying to build a movement around that. Um, uh, it's called field building to get people to understand like decision education is a thing. You should be demanding it for your children uh, starting in kindergarten all the way through 12th grade so that we can produce children who, you know, who aren't just like memorizing trigonomic functions but are able to actually navigate the world and be really good, you know, next century thinkers. So that's what we're trying to do there. We've put together a pretty great academic advisory board. Danny Kahneman's on it, Barb Mellers, Phil Tetlock, Michael Mobison, Paul Slovic, wow. Katie Milkman. That's quite um, a board. <laughs> yeah, it keeps, so that's the academic advisory board. There's more, more people on there as well. I apologize for it. Oh, Richard Thaler's on there. So, uh, and then we have a, a, a pretty good board also and business advisory council and so on and so forth of people who really believe in this as a movement and that this is something that's really, really, really missing from education. We spend so much time thinking about how to help adults be better decision makers and pretty much no time helping kids, you know, figure out how to be better decision makers or really even understand like, what would you be teaching them yeah. that would help them to do that? So that's the Alliance for Decision Education. You can find that online. I would love for people to go visit that. Well, and- definitely link to it. That's incredible. I, yes, we need that for our kids. That's so powerful. So thank you for all your work. We'll link to all of that stuff in our show notes. And thank you for taking the time. This was such a huge gift for me personally. And I hope, I, I know that our listeners will get so much out of it too. Well, thank, thank you. you for having me. This was a super fun conversation. Hey, Psychologist Off the Clock listeners, I'm going to guess that if you got to the end of this episode, that you also love to geek out about books in psychology. If you don't know where to store all your books and people are already complaining that you talk about this book that you're reading all the time, then why don't you join us once a month to read a book together? If you're interested in joining us, we hope you are. Just send an email to offtheclockpsych at gmail.com and we'll send you more information. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can get more psychology tips by subscribing to our newsletter and connecting with us on social media. We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold, and our podcast production manager, Jadine Stout-Williams. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our website, offtheclockpsych.com.